In the previous lesson, uh, we began this topic of proclaimed kingdom. And I dealt with the distinctions between the present age and the age to come. Uh, We talked about the creation mandate and how Jesus is fulfilling this mandate through the great commission given to the church. Uh, We discussed the nature of the kingdom of God as one that is breaking through this present age by means of gospel proclamation. And so here's a summary statement of pretty much what we've covered. I'd say it this way. uh, Those of us who are Christians today have been delivered from the domain of darkness and have been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son, Jesus Christ, just as it reads in Colossians 1.13. And because of that, we are presently, in this time, in this moment, we're presently experiencing aspects and benefits of the future age to come, now in this present age. Uh, Namely, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, forgiveness of sins. These are things that we're experiencing. Peace and union with God, etc. Hebrews 6 describes this as those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. And so last week, I ended the lesson by telling you all that there was an important element to the accomplishing of the mission of God in redemptive history, which I purposely left out of my teaching. And I said to you that if you're interested in finding out what that element was, tune in next week. And so we're here. So thank you for showing up. And here's the answer. Uh, the missing element, which I purposely, le- purposely left out of my lesson last week, is actually more than just an element. It's a person. And this person is vital in the accomplishing of the mission of God. Can anyone guess who this person is? It's not Jesus, by the way. Although he is essential. Yes, the Holy Spirit. Thank you. The person of the Holy Spirit. Um, And in our union with Christ through faith, the Spirit is the one who communicates or transfers those benefits to us. That's how we obtain them. That's how we possess them. The Spirit communicates or transfers them to us. These benefits are testimonies, true testimonies of a real covenantal transaction that has taken place. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus Christ has entered into this world and became the sin bearer so that those who would be united to him through faith would receive forgiveness of sins. But that's not all, right? The language used in the New Testament tells us more. It tells us that Jesus Christ, right, the Son of God, was accomplishing a mission that was decided upon way before the foundation of the world. This was a pact between the Father and the Son in eternity before creation, in which the Son would willingly fulfill the requirements of that pact and would receive its full reward. And as the scriptures say, he would not lose even one of those full rewards. And it's important to know that the benefits that we receive in Christ are all benefits that were accomplished by Jesus Christ himself and even rewarded to Christ by the Father on the basis of what we call the pactum salutis or the inter-Trinitarian agreement of a salvation plan between the Father and the Son, which 
was established even before the foundation of the world, as I mentioned. And you see that, if you need to take a note of where I'm getting these ideas from, uh, you can see that language in John 14, verses 4 through 12. So if you want to note that. Uh, Jesus has accomplished through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and especially in his ascension and exaltation, these benefits that are only given to his covenant people, namely those of you who are united to Christ. Now, if you're not united to Christ, you participate in none of these benefits. So, think about this, right? Christ defeats sin, therefore, those who are in him are freed from the bondage of sin, even though we fall. We see that in Romans 6, 14. Christ defeats death and is resurrected, and therefore, those who are in him will also rise from the dead in resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. We also see in his exaltation, right, uh, that, that part, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we only talk about the cross, but we forget the resurrection and that important element of the ascension, right, where he ascends to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That means that Christ reigns, right? He's sitting on the throne. And therefore, if Christ reigns, those who are in him will reign with him. And in fact, according to Ephesians, are already reigning with him or already seated with him in heavenly places. 2 Timothy 2.12 and also Ephesians. All that, all that is Christ's has been given to us and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. This is the nature of God's kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom made up of people who are born again in Christ. It is purely a work of the Holy Spirit. It is a kingdom that exists in this present age with born again people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. But it is also a kingdom that will be fully realized when Jesus returns. We don't get to experience the fullness of it. There's still sin and flesh and the devil. All of the benefits of Jesus' ministry will be experienced in its fullness without the interruption of sin that one day when he returns and we enter into glory. I would also add that it's an exclusive kingdom. This idea that everyone or anyone can contribute to the work of God or so-called kingdom work is incorrect and unbiblical. In fact, if you're not born again, you can't even see the kingdom, let alone contribute to it in any spiritual significance or with any spiritual significance. Uh, we see in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what does that mean practically? This means that although feeding the poor, for example is significant it cannot transfer a sinner even a poor sinner from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of god this also means that although foster care and helping children find a home is deeply deeply significant it in and of itself cannot possibly transfer a child from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of god either this means that although giving medical and financial relief to people is deeply, deeply significant, again, it cannot transfer a sinner, even a unhealthy 
one who needs medical relief. It cannot transfer them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. And although a Christian should live justly and lovingly towards his neighbor and in step with the gospel, it is not until the gospel is proclaimed and received by the sinner in faith that he is then transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. Proclamation is absolutely essential and necessary. This touches on the nature of this kingdom. And so how does this relate to the topic of proclaimed kingdom, as, as the title of this lesson is called? Uh, well, we see from Scripture that entering into the kingdom of God is a work done by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses means, namely the proclamation of the gospel. And so I want to cover two things uh, in today's lesson. You'll see it in the handout. The first point is the work of the Spirit in gospel proclamation. And that second point is the promises of the kingdom being fulfilled by the Spirit. All right, let's consider the first point, the work of the Spirit in gospel proclamation. So right before Jesus, Jesus ascended to heaven, he talks to his disciples, and this is what he says. He says in Luke 24, 46 through 49, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So here in this passage, we have a command and we also have a promise. The command here is to proclaim the gospel to all the world. And that's a pretty big task for a small group of individuals who, in fact, at the time were frightened, scared. But the good news is that Jesus promised, and this is where the promise is, he promised not to leave them alone. Right? God promises to give them power, which was the presence of the Holy Spirit himself in their lives. And the same command and promises are found at the beginning of Acts. Uh, it continues the story from the ascension of Jesus to the early, uh, to the early years of the Christian church. Uh, we see in Acts 1.6, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And you see by that question, it reveals how little they understood what Jesus was talking about when he spoke about the kingdom. They still haven't grasped that Jesus is not, Jesus' concern is not limited to this nation. It's for everyone everywhere, and we see that develop from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And they still do not realize that there must be a delay before he returns, a period in which there is this mission of gospel proclamation uh, throughout the world in the power of the Spirit. It wasn't, uh, it was incorrect to have this uh, sort of desire, especially within the disciples, to have this assumption that, um, well, Jesus, you'll return and the whole story will be over. No, there was a period in which, uh, which is part of God's plan, where God will empower his people to go and proclaim and spread the good news before everything ends. So again, uh, Jesus' reply, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, 7 through 8. And so having said those words, Jesus right there then ascends into heaven and an angel then reassures them that this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you saw him leave into heaven. But in the meantime, and this is, this is where we are in the, in the history of redemption, we have a job to do. They had a job to do. Uh, and Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that this, is, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. And then you know what happens after that, right? You, Pentecost happens, right? The first Christians are gathered together in one place when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin to preach the gospel in other languages. You see that in Acts 2, 1 through 6. Can I get someone to read that? When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came to heaven a sound like a mighty, mighty rushing wind, and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Thank you. Uh, it's a very clear sign, I think, that the Spirit has been given for a specific purpose, right? Uh, to help them spread the good news about Christ throughout the world. And you see that people were receiving this. Uh, in their own language. People from all nations were there present. And so you, you can kind of see there what the intention of God was there by um, bringing down the Spirit and anointing these people to be able to communicate the gospel in all different kinds of languages. There's that goal, right? That God would subdue and have dominion over all the world. And he's doing this through the spread of the gospel. Um, and it begins, uh, it spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth in fulfillment of uh, the words of Jesus in Acts 1.8. And it ends with Paul in Rome, which at the time was the center of the known world. And 2,000 years later, we see that God continues to be patient while the good news of Christ is spread and proclaimed in the power of the Holy Spirit to the end of the earth. And we're still there, right? We're still... Um, evangelizing. We're still spreading the good news of the kingdom. Uh, and this is how God in, intends, excuse me, this is how God extends his kingdom. And it's through the foolishness of preaching. Isn't that interesting? That uh, the way that he conquers, the way that he takes over, the way that his kingdom is spread is through something that if you're a businessman, you would say this is not the way to promote a product or or to gain people, or get people, and reach people. Uh, the foolishness of preaching, right? Preaching feels, even in today's time, as something that's very outdated. Um, there's even that phrase like, oh, please don't preach to me. Like, Papa, don't preach. Um, but again, this is how God extends his kingdom, through the foolishness of preaching. And we see uh, in 1 Corinthians one twenty one. 
For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right? It's interesting how many people I've experienced, even just people coming into the church or other Christians where I've had conversations with. Uh, it's interesting how a lot of them feel that it, it, it's time for us to remake what the church is doing or redo um, what we're doing, change our methods. Uh, many people have expressed that it's time for us to do new things in the church. Be more creative in the way that we reach people, out with the old and in with the new. Right? Yeah, how many times have we seen this happen where uh, everyone gets excited for that new celebrity pastor or the new way of having church? Then all of a sudden, a few years later, these innovations die out or prove unsuccessful. Every generation feels the need for a new thing to happen. And the regular means of grace are treated as outdated, ancient. And, and as I mentioned before, every business expert knows that the best way to sell something is not by preaching and proclaiming. That's bad business. While many unhealthy churches actually follow the business model it has result, it's resulted in pulpits being removed from the front and, ex, and exchanging that for stage props uh, and smoke machines and so on and so forth. And one of the distinguishing marks of the Protestant movement and its effects on church buildings is the placing of the pulpit right in the front center, where before it may have been an altar with the table uh, that had the Eucharist for the Mass. But as a, as a result of the Reformation, uh, the reformers recovered the centrality of the proclamation of the word of God in Christian worship. And, and not to say that the Eucharist is not important, right? And, and by Eucharist, I mean the Lord's Supper. Uh, in fact, I'd argue that the practice of the Lord's Supper in the church is proclamation, right? You see that in 1 Corinthians uh, eleven twenty six: for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in a sense, it is proclamation. But we see in the Protestant movement uh, this concept of Jesus Christ exercising his rule and authority in the church by and through his word. Right? Everything that we do in worship ought to be informed and led by the word of God. That should saturate Christian worship. And yet, in today's world, many churches have gone backwards and removed the pulpit. Not that pulpit, the wood is essential in and of themselves, but its removal demonstrates the place that the church gives to the proclamation and exposition of God's word, which fortunately is no place at all in, in a lot of these churches. Yet the preaching of the word is the means in which people are born again and enter into the kingdom. And so we can't um, underestimate the power of the proclaimed and preached word. Um, it is the chosen means by which uh, people enter the kingdom. Here's an example. I love this example. Can someone read it? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. I love that. While Peter was still saying that, he didn't even finish his sentence. While he was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. You see the power of gospel proclamation. So there's no need for all kinds of forms of manipulation. I know in certain church traditions there's altar calls, and this is not a shot on them. Um, but, but you see that it, it isn't necessary, right, to, to go through that, right, 
we can actually trust that God can start the work even before that, right? As the word is being preached, the person is, is feeling that conviction. They're hearing the word. It's, it's changing their opinions, their thoughts. Now all of a sudden they're sensitive to sin and they're sensitive to God's word. And in that very moment, that very moment, sometimes we can't pinpoint it when that person officially enters the kingdom of God there, right? He's born again. But we can trust that the word of God will do the work and we don't need to add to it. We can just trust it. We can proclaim it and allow the spirit of God to do that, transform, that transformation. And as we see in Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And so again, this verse shows us that the Spirit of God uses the preaching of his word to convert. This also shows us that we do, we do not need to manipulate. We do not need a sales pitch. We do not need to seek to attract and please the flesh, right? which always wants confirmation. We do not need to, to do that. We, we just simply need to trust in God's chosen means of grace. And although the Holy Spirit... And the word of God are distinct, right? You have the Holy Spirit and then you also have the word of God. They're distinct. Scripture shows us that there is a close and almost inseparable connection between the spirit and the word of God. And so even though we can categorize them as two separate things in our mind, when you see the works of the spirit, it's, it, it's always accompanied by the word of God and vice versa. Uh, and I'll try to prove, prove that to you from the Bible, right? Um, I'll start by saying that at one problem in trying to investigate that or, or digging through Scripture and, and trying to make the connection between the Word and the Spirit uh, is that English, the, the language English, lacks a word which uh, has the range of meaning of the Hebrew ruah and the Greek pneuma, where we get pneumatology or the study of, of the Holy Spirit. Both of these words can mean breath as well as spirit. So when you're trying to read about the spirit in the Bible and trying to do a word study, you run into the word breath and you run into the word spirit and they're used interchangeably. Sometimes breath means spirit and sometimes spirit means breath. And so you're having to do that work. Uh, Those are two distinct words, but throughout the Bible, the spirit of God is as closely connected to the word of God as breathed is connected to, or breath is connected to speech. It's so connected. The word and the breath, the word and spirit are very much connected. Um, just, just as it is as I speak, right? Breath and word. Uh, and the connection is suggested in the, in the very first words of Genesis. I'm going to show you here. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. It says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And, here it is, the breath of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there, uh, excuse me, let there, did I put B or by? Let there be light. Excuse me. And there was light. What does it mean that the breath of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Was he just going like this <gasps> over the waters? <laughs> I don't think so. Right? That's his spirit. Yes, sir? I, I think in, even in our uh, normal language, we say in the same breath. Yeah. Yeah. So we, what we mean is in the same things that I'm saying. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I would I would I would suggest that the word breath here is referring to the the Spirit Himself, right? The Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. It does. So depending on your translation, which is good, you, you get the actual uh, meaning of the word. Okay. Uh, so again, here we see that the breath of God is not that God was breathing heavy, right? It's obvious that it's referring to God's spirit moving over the face of the waters. And it's good to know that uh, in the NASB, uh, it's referring to the spirit of God, or it translates it that way. Skipping past generations of Old Testament history... Um, we also find the connection in the prophecy of Isaiah, and I'll show you here, in Isaiah 11.2. Uh, it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. See how close the attributes of the spirit are to the attributes of the word of God? Notice, right? The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I'll show you more. Uh, Isaiah 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit, which is upon you, and see here, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your children or out of the mouth of the children's children, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. And so here, I don't think it's too much to say that the spirit, which is upon you there, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, are, are basically the same thing, are working together the same way. Uh, and, and they are used interchangeably, right? The connection uh, that you see there is, again, spirit and word. Here's another one, Isaiah 61, 1a. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. So there you see the spirit of the Lord is upon me and this uh, anointing to bring good tidings to the afflicted. Notice the because, right? Now Jesus quotes this prophecy. Actually, let me go back here. Um, Luke 4.18. He quotes that same prophecy there in Luke 4.18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel. So there you see that connection with spirit and proclamation. Always together. Um, and this is the same as saying, he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel, therefore the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That, that's the concept, that's the idea. So where the word of God is, there the spirit of God is also. Um, word and breath cannot be separated, in other words. The connection is also seen here, I think, in the New Testament. Matthew ten sixteen through 20. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, Beware of men, for they, excuse me, they will deliver you up to councils and flog you in synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear testimony before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you up, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit of the Father is speaking through you. See that connection between the Spirit and the Word. Again, what will the Spirit do? Speak through the testimony of the disciples to Jesus through the gospel, right? That proclamation. Also, Acts 1.8. 
It says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. And so again, what will happen with the coming of the Spirit? The disciples will bear witness to Jesus. Pentecost, the Spirit came down. What was the first thing that people started to do? Proclaim, speak. The Word and the Spirit. Uh, we see the same thing happen again in Acts 5, 30-32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so the gospel they preach is not only their testimony, but the testimony of the, the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 6. For we know, brethren, beloved by God, that he has chosen you, for our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Okay? See that connection. And with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. So again, here he is describing one experience when he says, not only the word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's one experience. I can go on. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted, it, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. You receive the word, and it's at work in you. All right? The gospel comes in power and in the Holy Spirit precisely because it is the word of God, and it, it's a living word. It's working in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice, too, that Paul says that God is at work in you who believe. How is God at work? By his Spirit. Right? This is the Pauline way of understanding this concept. This is Paul's language. Uh, it is by the Word that God's Spirit is at work in you. Uh, and we will understand the work of the Spirit of God in the New Testament and in our lives only when we see the inseparable connection between God's Word and his spirit. And that's important. We always, when we, when we want to see God move, don't expect it apart from the word of God, right? Uh, and and that's, that's often a modern tendency where uh, people want to see miraculous things happen uh, and, and, and are quickly to attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit. But the next, the follow-up question should be, where was the word? Was Christ exalted? Because the word exalts Christ. Those are connections that you have to always make whenever you assume that a work of the Spirit was done. The Word and the Spirit are always connected. One of my favorites are Ephesians 6.17. It says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You can't get more of a tighter connection there. And again, there, there are a lot of statements in the New Testament where the Spirit and the Word are, are basically interchangeable. Uh, when James says that God brought us forth by the word of truth, it's obvious that we were brought forth by the Spirit of God. And so you can, you can use those as examples to make those connections. Also, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, right? He says in uh, John 16, 8 through 11, he says, When he comes, he will convict 
the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regards to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. You read that and you ask, was Jesus speaking of something other than what would happen through the proclamation of the gospel? No. The way that the Spirit... The way that the Spirit convicts the world is through the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, as we read in John 16, 13, who will lead us into all truth. And this truth is the gospel. As Jesus said, he will bear witness to me. So where the Word is, it, there's the Spirit as well. Or where the Spirit is, there's the Word. Um, to summarize that, uh, I would say that during, the, during these last days, right, the kingdom of God is spreading as the Spirit works through the proclamation of the gospel. Okay? So where, where uh, the, the kingdom is advancing, it's because the proclamation of gospel is, is, is being preached. The gospel is being preached, is being proclaimed, and God is making it effectual. Let's look at that second point in the handout. And this one's shorter. I think the discussion on the, the Holy Spirit required more time but the second point there's a second and final point is the promises of the kingdom being fulfilled by the spirit now uh, throughout this series we've defined the kingdom of God as being three things can anyone remember God's blank God's blank and God's blank anyone God's people, God's place, yeah, God's rule and blessing. Yeah. Again, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So judging by the nature of the kingdom of God at this point in redemptive history, we have to ask ourselves that question again. Who are God's people now? Where is God's place now? And how is God's rule and blessing being exercised now in this place in, in redemptive history? So uh, beginning with that first question, who are God's people? Romans 2 verses 28 through 29 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So who are God's people? God's people are and have always been his spiritual people. Right? All who were born of the Spirit. All who were born of the Spirit, both Jew and Gentile. And this has been the case even from the Old Testament all the way through the New. God's people are all who have trusted in Jesus Christ. There has never been any other way to be a son of the living God. God's people are all who have trusted in Christ. First uh, Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's that nation priesthood language there a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies 
of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so this, this passage is referring to the church, a, a mixed bag of Jew and Gentiles. The church is the the church is or are the people of God. And again, this is not replacement theology. We're not saying that the church is better or in any way more significant than the Jews or Israel. Jews have always and will always be invited to the table as the Gentiles graciously were. In fact, they were the first to be invited. And Paul makes the argument that of course we haven't forgotten the Jews. Of course God has not forgotten them. But no one will ever be called brother on the basis of ethnicity or early privileges, but only on the basis of the righteousness of Christ. God's people are simply those in Christ. Where is God's place? We've seen that in the garden, God once walked with Adam. You see that in Genesis 3, 8. But that communion broke after the fall, right? Temples and tabernacles were then required along with ceremonial rituals of cleansing in order to be in the presence of God. And that was the case until Messiah came, until Jesus, the Emmanuel, God with us, entered this world as the true temple of God himself. Then, you remember, he ascended, he went away. So where would be God's place after that temple left, Jesus left? The spirit of the living God has now made his abode in us, right? His temple now is not a holy building, but a holy people. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 tells us that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And even more, when Christians gather together corporately, Paul describes us as a building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. We see that in Ephesians 2, uh, 20 through 21, and also 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 through 4. We are God's place. And then that last question, which is how is God's rule and blessing being exercised? Look at Romans 7, verses 6 through 7 says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So from this verse, we understand two things that we as Christians are no longer condemned by the law of God. Therefore, what rules us is what Paul calls the way of the Spirit here. And we are identified as the people who are born of the Spirit. Yet at the same time, we see Paul qualify that by saying that the law is not sin, right? Just because you're not condemned by the law doesn't mean that we uh, look into the law and, and to, to, to allow it to do its work to, to reveal sin. But we are identified not as people who have a law upon us, but as a people who have been born again by the Spirit of God himself. Uh, and again, this is what Paul means by the new way of the Spirit. 
Right? God is ruling over us by his spirit and, of course, through the means of the word. This is what we experience as, as the people of God. Anyway, uh, bringing, all, bringing it all together, uh, we've discussed both the work of the spirit and proclamation and how the, promise, or the promises of the kingdom of God are being fulfilled by the spirit. And you see that that mission, that goal that God had from the beginning, he's actually fulfilling it and he's doing it through the spirit and through the word. And at this point in time, right where we find ourselves in redemptive history, we are called to proclaim the word of God and trust that the spirit of God will save whom he will. Uh, This is a proclaimed kingdom. That's what it means. And we should never doubt the ordinary means of grace. As ordinary as they may seem, we should never doubt them. We should trust that God's word will do um, what it was intended to do. And it will be the the means in which uh, God will fulfill his mission and his purposes. And I want to close by reading uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. And I think this, this verse exhorts and also summarizes everything well. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would, commend, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And of course, to that I say amen. Any questions or comments or thoughts before we close out? Amen. Amen, brother. Amen. Amen. Let me close out in prayer. Our Father, uh, help us, Lord, as a church to never depart from the commission. Uh, May we trust in your ordained means, and may we never attempt to improve on them, but that we would faithfully proclaim the gospel in both word and sacrament. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.